Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We are broadcasting from Bloomberg's Government Next 2018 conference in Washington, D.C. I'm Pim Fox. My co-host and colleague Lisa Abramowitz is off today. The healthcare industry and technology, where they meet, is one of the expertise of Dr. Pat Connolly. She joins me now as Executive Vice President of Information Technology and the Chief Information Officer of the Permanente Federation. She is also Associate Executive Director of the Permanente Medical Group. They are based in Oakland, but I'm happy to say she joins me here at our Bloomberg Government Next 2018 conference. Thank you very much for being here, Dr. Connolly. Tell people who may not be familiar with the Permanente Foundation what it is and what it does. Well, Pim, thank you for having me. Um, the Permanente Federation is actually the organization that links the eight Permanente medical groups in Kaiser Permanente. Um, and we bring together the expertise of our physician leadership partnered with um, our Kaiser Foundation health plan leaders. Um, and it's, it's an integrated model uh, in which our expertise w- with respect to care delivery um, is really a, a guiding force in how we design our systems uh, to deliver care to the uh, 12 million members that we serve. Now, as part of that, you're using technology you're going to be using more of it in the future, as are all healthcare providers. Offer us a current example about how you are using algorithms to, in a sense, foretell the potential for patients to have some kind of deterioration in their condition, but to do it remotely. Um, well, as you know, we, we have a tradition of innovation, uh, and uh, Permanente Medicine looks carefully at evidence-based uh, information to help us determine where we can uh, offer improvements in quality. Um, and with the um, uh, implementation of the EMR, we suddenly have this huge volume of data that we can look at very differently. Uh, and, and that's where you bring together the technology of high, um, robust analytics with large volumes of data. So we've developed some systems, one of which we call advanced alert monitoring. Um, And uh, this has been published by Gabriel Escobar, who uh, is a uh, uh, Permanente Medical Group physician. And what this does is leverage information in the EMR with an algorithm to identify patients who are at risk when they're hospitalized. uh, at risk for a deterioration. And we fire an alert to the care team um, so that they can assess the patient and intervene early um, to avoid that deterioration. Uh, and we've been doing this now for um, almost two years and have accumulated um, enough evidence to demonstrate that this makes a difference, that this is improving uh, the care of our patients. And, and with that information, then we um, integrate this algorithm and this um, functionality into our system very broadly. Now, you're also looking at the Internet of Things, IOT, as a way to connect more directly with patients. For example, you can have 
in-home monitoring devices for people that are dealing with diabetes, for example. Tell us some of the things that you see that are maybe if you, unless you're involved in it, you think this is like science fiction, but it's true to life. Well, you're right. The pace of technology change is outstripping, in many ways, our ability to think about how um, how much change this can um, uh, create for us. If you take the hospital, for example, the connection of, of devices, medical devices, to the EMR um, allows us to get rid of manual entry, which is uh, one of those big patient safety issues where, you know, mistakes can be made. Um, now that information is directly imported, but it's also immediately available. So you can see how this can speed and improve the care that we're delivering. Now you referred to an outpatient setting, which is actually where we think the Internet of Things really is taking us. So for the last 50 years, we've been telling people to come to us. We've created centers, our offices, our hospitals, where we concentrate equipment and expertise to deliver care. The Internet of Things allows us to bring care to the patient, a whole different paradigm where not only do, um, are they in the security and safety of their home, a much more comfortable environment, um, but we're not interrupting work or school. And the real difference is they're not passive in this process. That information is available to the patient and to their caregivers. They become part of the care team. And that's really the game changer there. Um, because if we look particularly at health and how much of disease burden is related to choices that we all make in our lives, and we begin to share with our patients how those choices are impacting their care and show them how their care is progressing, their role in improving their health is going to change. Can you see a time when a device such as an Apple Watch, just as an example, takes various types of biometric information and then is able to transmit that directly to a file of some kind that would allow a physician or healthcare provider to gather a more holistic picture of the patient, not just a snapshot. Right. Well, I think that's the direction that we're going. Uh, right now, devices, um, you know, such as glucometers um, provide that information and, um, and it can be brought forward in a way that you see all this data, which would be overwhelming to a care provider. Again, the power of analytics, one can configure that data so that what the clinician sees is an alert that something has met a threshold um, or a trend. Um, what you're talking about is going from beyond a single measurement to a more holistic picture. And I, you know, from a technical standpoint, absolutely, that's a possibility. Where we need to take a step back is we need to then ask our patients how they feel about that. Um, it, how, you know, this whole issue about privacy, my data, um, this is me, how much do I want you to have? Um, and how secure can we keep it? So um, I think as this evolves, there's going to be a lot of conversation that's going to need to involve patients as well as clinicians um, about how far we take this and how we use this information. Give you about 15 seconds. What is the feeling among doctors? Are they embracing this? Um, broadly, doctors think that this is a new future and very much so. The fear, which you've probably heard, is that idea of this huge amount of data in which 
very important information could be lost. So the technology to configure it is critical to physicians. Thank you very much for being with us. Much appreciated. Dr. Pat Connolly, Executive Vice President, Information Technology, Chief Information Officer of the Permanente Federation, and also Associate Executive Director of the Permanente Medical Group. Coming up with Peter Barnes, we've got Bloomberg Politics, Policy, Power, and Law. Thanks for listening. We've got day two coming up of the Bloomberg Government Next 2018 Conference in Washington, D.C. The world's largest retailer and foot traffic as well as same store sales when it comes to the holiday shopping season. Here to tell us more about Walmart earnings and a new partnership as well as the effect of their acquisition of Flipkart in India is Matt Boyle, consumer reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Matt, tell us about Walmart and what investors really wanted to hear when it comes to all of those quarterly results. Well, they probably don't want to hear about the uh, the news yesterday that hit the drama surrounding their Indian e-commerce unit, uh, whose uh, co-founder was ousted uh, or uh, forced to resign, actually, um, after some allegations of sexual assault. Uh, investors really want to hear about the U.S. business, and are they keeping up the momentum that they've had? Last quarter, the second quarter, uh, they posted the best uh, sales growth in, uh, in over a decade. Um, but for every quarter that Walmart does well, um, it's getting harder and harder for them to top that, of course. So they're going up against a pretty strong uh, sales growth figure last year this time. Uh, so all eyes are going to be on them. And then not just their sales, but it's their bottom line that's been really a sore point for some investors. Uh, people are happy with the sales growth, but at what cost is it coming? It's their margins have really been hurt by all the investments they're making abroad. Uh, Flipkart is an example. They spent $16 billion there. And then also the investments in the U.S. to battle Amazon. Well, talk a little bit more about those efforts in their battle with Amazon. I believe that they have opened an artificial, what they're calling an artificial intelligence kiosk or area at one Walmart in Levittown, New York. What yeah, they're trying uh, to do. They're, well, they're they're trying to make shopping uh, easier, and they're testing all sorts of different things. You know, Amazon and Google aren't the only companies that can uh, uh, try to test things and see if they could fail fast. Walmart is, uh, you know, investing billions in figuring out, you know, how can we make it easier for customers to get goods, particularly groceries, uh, you know, into their hands. So they they're doing some small uh, tests also in in Texas. They've got a uh, a lab going on in Austin. So they're what they're doing is they're rapidly hiring technology experts, data scientists, throwing them at all these problems saying, okay, you know, we built the most profitable retail concept known to man called the super center, but a super center is not how most people really want to shop and not how they're going to be shopping in the years ahead. So Walmart really wants to be seen as a technology company. Um, it's not the first thing you think about, of course, but that's why they're doing all these deals and partnerships. They've got partnerships with Google. They've got partnerships, you know, with uh, the Japanese company Rakuten. They're they're all over the board with these partnerships, thinking that you know the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, that being, of course, Amazon. And so they're using this to get smarter. And today's partnership, of course, with Ford is yet another example of that.
Well, you've done the segue for me, Matt. Go ahead. Tell everybody about how maybe you're going to get into an automobile. It will be driverless or autonomous, whatever you want to describe it. And maybe there'll be a button that you just push and it'll take you to Walmart. Well, the, yeah, there's two elements to this. One is what they already had announced earlier this year with Waymo, which is where, yeah, a driverless car would actually transport you to the Walmart. Um, I'm not sure if, uh, how I feel about that at the moment. But what's been announced today with Ford is uh, autonomous car deliveries. Um, where the, uh, the the car would come right up to your curbside, to your house. Uh, now, there would be a driver in it. Um, it would look autonomous. It would give the appearance that there's nobody there, but there actually would be a human in the car. But using voice prompts and, and commands, uh, the person would come out of their house, uh, pop the trunk, get their groceries, uh, tell the car in some fashion that the, you know, the delivery is done, and it would go on its way. I mean, Walmart is, is experimenting with all sorts of different ways uh, to get online orders uh, to its customers. They've even tried having their own employees uh, deliver orders on their way home from work. I can just see now an automated slingshot that just throws your entire grocery order through the window of the automobile that lands precisely on your doorstep as the old wet newspaper used to do. Does, is any, have they costed out like what advantage this would give them beating Amazon or is this just throw a lot no, at the I mean, wall this, see what sticks they're not yeah it's it's let's see what sticks what is really most economical for walmart is for you to still get in your car and go to walmart um they're trying to make that easier of course by having curbside pickup uh where you will just drive up to the parking lot and a nice friendly person will come out and put the uh your grocery order in your trunk but this is walmart's big advantage against amazon right now i don't mean uh delivery i'm talking about their food business they need to keep their lead in the U.S. food sector. Um, they, they have over 20% market share in the U.S. grocery business. This is nearly a $1 trillion market, and it's one that Amazon, for all its prowess and for all its uh, smarts, still has not really figured out. And that's, of course, why they, you know, why they bought Whole Foods uh, last year in an attempt to, uh, to get serious about food. But uh, Walmart needs to know, they need to keep your weekly grocery shop. Right. It's reliable, it's profitable, and so they're coming up with just about any way they can do it and that includes you know a car driverless car coming to your house to drop off your avocados i'm waiting for matt boyle to drop off my avocados matt boyle consumer reporter for bloomberg thank you for joining us in our bloomberg interactive broker studios talking about walmart shares are down about one percent Broadcasting live from Bloomberg's Government Next 2018 conference in Washington, D.C. And we've heard a lot about connected cities and here to help us understand what that term means and what it can do for the lives of citizens in those cities is Ben Levine. He is the executive director of MetroLab Network. This is a national network of 40 cities and 50 universities. And he's here to tell us more. Ben, thank you very much for being with us. What is MetroLab Network? Well, first of all, Pim, thank you for having me. MetroLab is a collaborative of cities and universities, and the goal is to take academic research that is happening in, in universities and figure out a way of translating that to, to the local government policy process, to think about how new knowledge that's created, whether it's related to data science or engineering or social science, how that can have a positive impact on the lives of, of residents of, of cities and communities. What would be an example of such an application? Is it things like cameras that are then linked to database? 
databases? What would be an example? So uh, you brought up cameras, so I'll give you an example. The University of Texas at Austin is working on a video analytics approach that uses computer vision and machine learning to understand how humans are moving around their cities. And ultimately, and you can think about that as, you know, someone crosses a street with a stroller or on a bicycle or in a car, and a computer is able to understand the the characteristics of that person's uh, maybe their age because maybe they're walking uh, with a uh, with a particular characteristic that would define someone as older or maybe someone's walking with a stroller maybe a car is driving in a manner that's unsafe or or getting into a near collision a computer can understand how those uh, how those dynamics are playing out and can ult- can ultimately funnel back into a policy making process because now the city understands how to make urban planning decisions that can create safer streets for everybody. You have a background, you've advised the Department of the Treasury, you've also had a background working in finance with Morgan Stanley where you interacted with a lot of state and municipal uh, governments. What have you found in terms of the level of technology that currently exists in many cities? Well, I think like the entire economy, I think the world is becoming more technology and data oriented. I think that it's probably true that maybe cities lag the leading engineering or leading uh, companies in the world just because they aren't able to hire the uh, either because of salaries or because of uh, workforce or because of the way they're resourced in budgets. I think that they're not able to necessarily look like uh, an Amazon, say. But that's where Metro Lab comes in, right? That's where, that's where I think we're trying to make a difference. I think that there is not a perfect solution to taking local governments and turning them into uh, into entities that are that are running on sort of the absolute latest technology on a dime. I think that, and, and by the way, I think there's good reason for that. I think that, that as, as governments, we should be skeptical of technology. We should be careful not to adopt uh, certain video analytics approaches that may uh, introduce questions about civil rights or may introduce questions about privacy. I think that there's actually an obligation for, for governments to be more measured in the way that they approach these technologies. But we do need to figure out a way of embracing what's out there and, and, and trying to aim that at, at the goals that, that governments have. Now, of course, we have been reporting along with many other news organizations about the wildfires that are hitting and are uh, really taxing uh, the strength of, of California's fire preparedness and causing great devastation. Metrolab can help to figure out how to prevent or at least mitigate those kinds of things in a certain way, right? So I'll give an example of a project that I think you're referring to that um, that was done in partnership between uh, UCSD, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego County. And there was a project that originally started as sort of bringing connectivity, so bringing uh, the ability for rural broadband, or, or sorry, rural fire stations to communicate with broadband technology. And, and that approach is actually being used now to to do video analytics to understand how fires are, are starting, when they're starting, and respond more quickly. Now, it's not a panacea. If I knew the answer of how to address the issue, I wouldn't be here with you today. I'd be over there uh, h- helping address the issue. And But I do think there's an opportunity for researchers, as they've done at UCSD, to sit down with uh, with local authorities who are and state authorities who are working on addressing a life-threatening issue and, and, and really figure out what's out there because if we don't uh, if we don't embrace that tool i'm not sure what what other options we have if you are a state or local official listening to this and hearing about metro lab what do you want them to take away if they're not already experiencing this kind of benefit from technology yeah i think that 
a couple lessons. I think one is uh, think about how you can use your data as a strategic asset. I think there's a lot of uh, there's a sexy term smart cities out there and you'll hear a lot of uh, excitement about this idea of smart cities. I think at the end of the day, smart cities is about integrating data in responsible ways that can bring together uh, that, that can bring together agencies bring together public policy processes that allow governments to make more informed decisions about about uh, their activities. See, and I thought you were going to say just send Ben Levine an email at Metro Lab Network in Washington, D.C. That is that is another approach. You can visit <laughs> www.metrolabnetwork.org and get in touch with us. Thanks very much. Ben Levine, he is the executive director of Metro Lab Network in Washington, D.C. We're broadcasting live from Bloomberg Government's next 2018 conference. At the foothills of the Allegheny Mountains lies one particular location, Buckhannon, West Virginia. Joining me now is Rob Hinton. He is the chairman of the West Virginia Broadband Council, but he is also the executive director of the Upshur County Development Authority in Buckhannon, West Virginia, and he joins me now. Rob Hinton, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Tell people a little bit about your background and the work that you have done to add to the economy of your local region. It's not just something right now having to do with broadband, although that's it. Right. But you've done a lot for your area. Right. So the uh, my background is I used to be an entrepreneur. Um, and what I mean by used to be entrepreneur is that I, I was in the private sector, right? Um, so I was a casualty of the 2008 uh, financial crisis and uh, ended up in Buchanan, West Virginia. Met my wife. We decided to stay there. Um, and uh, decided to uh, create some change. And so taking the entrepreneurial uh, attitude that, that I, I have ingrained, um, we said, you know, look, let's, uh, let's see how we can expand the opportunities here. Uh, one thing we lacked was connectivity. So we had to improve uh, broadband connectivity. We uh, uh, enticed a company to come there and then run fiber to become a gig city. Uh, we also, uh, we have a large county. Uh, so we had to expand uh, wireless broadband to connect the entire county. Uh, we also uh, needed to leverage the assets at our at our local uh, university, uh, business department, uh, the uh, entrepreneur expansion of entrepreneurial uh, curriculum. Uh, we're constructing an innovation center uh, that will mimic uh, a very small scale uh, type of uh, innovation center that mimics the uh, Cambridge Innovation Center that uh, it started up in uh, Boston at MIT's campus. Um, so we're we're trying to create. Uh, we're trying to keep up the pace with the change in technology and the changing, uh, changing ways of, of how employment uh, takes place. You also seem extremely good at raising money because I'm just looking through some of your accomplishments here. $3 million raised from the USDA Rural Utilities Service Community Connect funds. Uh, more money raised from power grants, opportunity zones. You have to put together, I want you to talk about the mix of opportunities that you have to put together in order to make something happen? Well, the assets of the area, so the incumbent assets that, that each area has will define what you're able to do and what your ability is to do. And then you, can, then you have to define projects. You have to identify what kind of projects will enhance this area, what kind of projects will entice companies to locate there, what kind of projects will uh, spur economic development and be a catalyst for private uh, investment. <clears throat> Once you have the projects, uh, then you can go out and start identifying where the funding is. Uh, in the private sector, you have a lot of different options to go after funding, right? You have banks, you have a capital equity, um, angel investors, what have you. 
uh, in, the, in the public sector, um, it's very defined, um, and it is very rigorous uh, to go after capital in the public sector from a standpoint of RUS. Uh, that was a 700-page proposal that we put together for USDA in order to uh, expand broadband over 1,000 square miles. Um, our power funding was about 250-page application to uh, receive the largest share of prof- or power funding to, to a small community. Um, you know our AML. Our AML was the largest uh, largest amount that we raised was about 16 million, and what that is is abandoned mine land money, so uh, used for uh, economic development. In this pilot case, that was actually the shortest application, which is about 50 pages. So, um, I mean, just putting all that stuff together, I mean, it's it, it's it's what you have to do if you want to achieve uh, the funding. If you want to go after the funding, you have to make the commitment to do that. Based on your experience, can you compare or even offer up some of the things that you have learned working in the public sector now compared to the private sector? You just mentioned the size of the applications. That must have been a big change. Are there other things that you have learned so that people can become educated about this process? Um, You know, a a big thing to leveraging federal funds and bringing them into rural underserved communities is developing relationships with the agencies that have the funding. Um, You know, the actual people. Right. Correct. Okay. Correct. So the the actual agencies, the agencies usually have reps in each state and they usually have a delegate in, 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 in the federal, uh, in DC. Um, so working with your federal delegation, uh, senators, Congress representatives, um, you can achieve the relationship, um, speak about your project, never submit. One of the things I learned is do not submit an application or a proposal blind. Make sure the agency is aware of the project that you have in mind. Uh, get buy-in or consensus that this is a good project because at the same time, those agencies want to invest in projects. And so they have to be sold on the project. And this gives you an opportunity to kind of vet it a little bit and see what kind of a response you'll get from the agencies. And do they then have to go and sell it to someone else as well? Because it's probably some committee or some group that has to weigh in on this. Right. For instance, if you look at US EDA money, um, you have a state rep. Uh, they're kind of the, the, the initial layer of vetting. Um, whether they like it or not, uh, they're going to have to approve or disapprove of the, of the project before they can submit it to their committee that represents usually six or seven states. Collectively, they look and review those applications, grade them, score them, uh, and then decide on, on what projects get funded where. Tell us more in detail about Buckhannon and what kinds of things you'd like to see develop in the future. Sure. So Buchanan is a very unique area. Uh, we're just south of the uh, the FBI Biometric Center in, in Bridgeport and Clarksburg. However, we're, we're a rural area. Uh, the city's about uh, 6,000 people. County's about 25,000. Uh, we do have a small university there, West Virginia Wesleyan. Uh, we also have a, a hospital a, as well. So I mean, we have medical and educational. Uh, one of the things that we want to create is a hub for entrepreneurial activity. Uh, so we have 1,500 enrolled students at West Virginia Wesleyan. Um, the best potential time to, workforce, right? But the best time to start a company is, you know, in your early 20s. Uh, so it's a, it's about getting these individuals not only at the college level, but also at the K through eighth grade through 12th grade level, uh, getting them exposed to the, the the idea that they can be an entrepreneur. So we're putting together programs in computer science, um, coding. Uh, robotics, things like that, that we're going to have workshops and seminars that we're going to be exposing these individuals to these skills, these trades. Uh, Maybe they create a business. At the end, they may be able to be more marketable in a telework type environment. And just quickly, 
If there are other local or municipal entities that are hearing you and hearing your story, how do they connect with you to learn from your experience? Can they get in touch with you directly? Sure. Um, I'm sure that, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I want to give my phone No, no, out. no. I wouldn't. <laughs> but I mean, in other words, they can contact your organization. Right. They can contact the Upshur County and Development Authority. And you can kind of walk, you can say this was our experience. Right. Broadband.westvirginia.gov is, uh, is our, our council website. My contact information is on there. Um, you, you know, feel free to contact me if, you, if you'd like to chat. All right. Well done. And um, what's next for you? Where, where, give you 10 seconds. What, what is, next are you raising money for? Right now, we're, we're carrying out the projects that we did uh, raise money for. You're spending for the money. We're spending the money. You know, the, the hardest thing about it is execution. So we want to perfect execution. Thanks very much for being great at execution here. Rob Hinton, he is the chairman of the West Virginia Broadband Council, also executive director of the Upshur County Development Authority in Buckhannon, West Virginia. We're broadcasting from Bloomberg's Government Next 2018 conference in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.